Atlanta Hymnal. Turn to 294. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Let's sing with gusto. It's on my computer. I've got two verses. I need a third at least. And now I need some music to go with it. She wrote three hymns every week. Something over 8,000 hymns. Now, what does this mean, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock? He protects us. Hmm? He protects us. 
just like Moses. Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses asks this request. Please show me your glory. And the Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Wow. Wow. Moses required protection even from the God he loved. Think God will not protect us from anything else? Let's sing number 258. <clears throat> A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior. Oh! 
Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. There is a possibility that we will finish 2 Peter this morning. So what are we doing? Why are we here? Why did you get up this morning and get dressed and drive to Smyrna, Tennessee and come join us here this morning? What, what are we doing? What's this all about? Well, most of you know the, the stuff in the Bible. Most of you know it. Jeff here has been to Bible school. Alex in the back has been to Bible school. And Steve's got a, an education from seminary and reads his Greek polyglot back there to check on me with every word I say. And so, so these are folks who know the Bible. What are they doing here? Well, Peter's about to answer that question. Because he's writing to people who he says, you essentially know this stuff. They've heard it. They had heard it from Peter. They had heard it from Paul, which Peter's going to bring up at the end of this chapter. You've heard it. You know this stuff. But I want to remind you. I want to bring it up again. I want to say it over and over. It's not difficult for me to go back time and time again and say the same things because it's necessary for you to hear the same things over and over again. Why? Because you're you. And because you'll forget. And because you'll sit here this morning and you'll sing to God and you'll praise God and you'll listen to God's word. And you'll walk out of here hopefully this morning kind of floating on that cloud of the knowledge of God's goodness and his grace. And that he's got you in his hand and that he's protecting you eternally and that he's ever loved you. And then you're going to get in the car and someone's going to cut you off and all your sanctification is going to hit the floor instantly. There were so many people nodding as I said that. We should wait for them to leave and then go. <laughs> we, we should. Because you're going to forget. Because you're human. And as long as you live in these human fleshly bodies, then you're living in a sinful body. And that sinful body is going to resist the things of God. Paul says that the spirit and the flesh are at war with each other. They're at enmity against each other. And your mind and your spirit is going to say, God is wonderful and I'm so glad I was here and I wish I could spend all my time in the glorious presence of God and I wish I could spend all my time praising him and exercising endless faith toward him. I should be a beacon of light everywhere I go. People should look at me and say, what's different about you? And I should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within me and I should live as a Christian person every day so that everyone around me has no question that I am absolutely committed to the Bible and committed to Christianity and, and you're just you're going to have that mindset as you walk out today what are you going to be like on Tuesday you're going to be busy you're going to be doing your jobs you're going to be fighting with the kids you're going to be arguing with neighbors you're going to be you're going to go back to being yourself you're going to go back to your flesh and that struggle is going to go on and on and on through your whole life. You need to be reminded. That's why you're here. That's why you can know all this stuff. I'm going to read 2 Peter 3.9. How often have we talked about 2 Peter 3.9? 
I got a video about it. I've, I've written an article about it on the website. We've, we've discussed 2 Peter 3.9. We're going to discuss it again this morning. Why? Because we need to be reminded. We need to keep hearing the word of God. We need to keep letting the word of God wash over us because it does restore our souls and restore our minds and keep us in that everlasting love of God that we just so easily neglect, that we, like sheep, wander away from. Anybody here want to testify? (laughs) They can't hear you all nodding your head on, on the tape, but... So Peter starts out, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up, the NASB says, your sincere mind, the King James, I think, says your pure mind by way of reminder. In other words, you've got all your sinful proclivities, you've got your sinful flesh, you've got your sinful imagination But there is that part of your mind that understands at least partially some of the things of God. There is that part of you, that better angel of your nature. That is some part of you that longs for God, that is responding to the spirit of God that is within you. And Peter says, I want to stir that up. I want to keep you remembering that. And so I want to stir up the sincere, the pure part of your mind by way of reminding you there's really not much you can do for other Christians that is much better than reminding them who they are, who God is, and what their eternity is. It's one of the best things you can do for a Christian. A Christian will hear it. A Christian will say, oh, thank you for reminding me. There are people who write to us all the time and say, just thank you for stirring that up. Thank you for reminding me of what I should always be holding on to. I should constantly be involved in the word. I should constantly be aware of the presence of God. I should constantly be aware that our Savior saved us since before the foundation of the world, and I should walk out my life as if that is true. But I won't. I'll forget. So, this morning, I'm going to remind you yet again of things that are written Way back in the Old Testament, Peter's going to do it. He's going to reach all the way back to Noah and say, remember, remember that? Remember the things that the prophets wrote? Remember the promises that were made to Israel? Remember all that? Then he's going to bring up the day of the Lord. Remember the day of the Lord. Okay, so he's reaching back and telling them things that they ought to know. And then he's going to say, not only remember the prophets, but remember what the apostles have said. Remember what Jesus and his apostles have said to you. So the whole pantheon of revelation of God to this point, remember all that. It's all part of God's absolute control of human history that has culminated at this point in your salvation. Remember that. So Peter says, this is now, beloved, the second letter that I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember 
the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I think it is interesting that Peter just took the Old Testament and the prophets and all the promises that are given to Israel in the Old Testament and then combined them with your Lord and Savior, that would be Jesus, and the teaching of the apostles. The apostolic teaching is never contradictory to what's in the Old Testament. The apostolic teaching is a continuation of the revelation of God that began in the Old Testament. That's why on Wednesday nights here for years and years and years, we've been looking at and reading through books of the Old Testament. And as we do that, we see, again, the proclamation of God and the foreshadows of Christ to come. And we have found that there is one author to this entire book, Old Testament, New Testament. Wherever we look, we see the Spirit of God teaching us, teaching us, teaching us the same things over and over and over again. That's remarkable. It's really wonderful. It's really incredible that we can look at this book that was authored by a great many men over several thousand years, and we find one author writing the same thing, teaching the same thing over and over again. So remember, says Peter, remember the words that were spoken beforehand, that were spoken before you were even born. The things that are in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior that is spoken by your apostles. Real quick now. We sang this morning, free from the law, oh, happy condition. Did Peter just say, pay attention to the commandments of Sinai? Well, no, he didn't. He didn't say, pay attention to the commandments of Moses. Because Moses himself said, God's going to send you another lawgiver, like myself. And the gathering of the people is going to be to him. And then Jesus gets on the planet and says things like, you've heard it said. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the law of Moses. You've heard it said. And then he follows it with, but I say. And he lays out new rules, new commandments. He even says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Okay, where did he get that authority? Where does he get that right to start handing out new commandments that not only run sometimes opposite to Moses' commandments. Here, I'll give you an example. You know I love this example. The law says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus quotes that. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say, if your brother smites you on the left cheek, give him your right cheek also. Okay, that's entirely different than what Moses said. Moses said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I say, somebody hit you, let him hit you again. Entirely different. Why? Because he's the new lawgiver. He's handing out the new commandments. And in his economy, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. Not by the way you follow the commandments that are written in stone. Not the way you keep the 613 rules 
of the Mosaic Covenant, but by your love for one another. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Jesus said that's the great commandment. And then he said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He took the entirety of the Old Testament law and narrowed it down to two basic rules. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor like yourself. There, he narrowed down the entire Old Testament to two rules. Two simple rules. Are you doing it, Todd? Not even close. Not even close. So Peter says, pay attention. Remember, stir up that pure mind. Remember what you're called to and remember what the commands of Jesus are. And the reason you know the commands of Jesus is because they've been handed down to you by your apostles. You've got all the promises. You've got all the prophecies. You've got the entire Old Testament. And now you've got the new revelation that Jesus has brought via the new covenant. You've got the higher, better lawgiver. You've got a higher, better covenant. And you've got the sacrifice of Christ that is fully and completely atoned for your sin so that you can rush to the throne of God crying, Abba, Father. This is all new. You're not going to find that in the Old Testament. But he combines all of the revelation of God and all of the word of God and says this all belongs to you. Do you feel that? The whole word of God, the whole counsel of God belongs to you. Now, granted, Peter is writing very specifically. He's writing to the Jewish diaspora. Don't forget that because it's going to be obvious the more we go through this chapter. He's going to say things that don't directly apply to the Gentile church. He's even going to say things that are completed by Paul and the things that Paul wrote to the Gentiles that Peter doesn't see as being applicable to the Jews that he's writing to. So remember the audience, but remember what he's doing in saying that the entirety of the Word of God, not just the New Testament, the entirety of the Word of God is all part of God's revelation of himself. So know this, verse 3. Know this first of all, not this is the first thing you ought to know. What's the first thing you know? Old Jed's a millionaire. Okay, never mind. (laughs) Forget it. Just seeing if you're paying attention. He doesn't mean chronologically first. Did you all get that joke? You all? Okay, fine. Not chronologically first. He means know this of first importance. Now, if Peter is taking the time to say pay attention to this, that he's about to say something really, really important. He wants you to pay attention to this. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Okay, now we put that in contrast with the word of God, the things that the prophets have revealed, the things that the apostles have revealed, the commandments of Christ. That's all the word of God, but... In the last day, there are going to be people who, rather than follow the word of God, follow after their own fleshly desires, their own lustful hearts, and they're going to mock your Christianity. Anybody want to testify again? (laughs) 
because there are going to be people who are going to mock the Bible, mock the Word of God. You know what the word mock means? It means to make fun of. I hear folks all the time say that Christianity is is just a crutch for the weak-minded. If you were smart, if you were intelligent, if you were grown up, if you were well-educated, then you wouldn't need that Christianity thing. You wouldn't need that Bible thing because you'd understand that we just all graduated out of the primordial ooze and, and we just all became giraffes and rhinoceroses and people somehow out of a one-celled being that grew out of the primordial ooze. I don't know. That takes more faith than I have. In fact, Megan wrote to me the other day and said that in her classes, you know, she was working to be a surgical technician. She said they showed a film in which they talked about the first fish that ever decided to grow lungs and walk on the land, which, which seems like an incredible leap to me that there's a fish that doesn't even know that land exists because his whole life he's been underwater, but then he thinks that land might exist and that it would be great if he could go walk on the land, though he can't walk, and, and that he should grow some lungs. And apparently he couldn't do it in his own lifetime, so he managed to get a whole lot of other fishes involved in, in over the course of thousands and millions of years till one of them successfully crawled up on the land and kind of went, ta-da, you know, and the ta-da fish, and, and then got up and walked, and that's why today we have platypuses. I, I don't understand... I don't even understand the thinking. Okay, but they'll mock. They'll listen to us, and they'll say, oh, that Bible thing, that takes faith. You read what you read in the Bible, and you you believe that through faith. You're just believing fairy tales because you want it to be true. That takes faith. It takes just as much faith to believe Darwinism as it ever took to believe the Bible. The Bible has evidence. The Bible has proof. Darwin can't even find a missing link. So, but they're going to mock us. They're going to make fun of us. So, now, I said all that, that extended treatise, to say when they mock, which they do, we all agree they do, when they mock, what they don't realize is they're actually fulfilling what the Bible said they would do. The Bible said that they would mock. And the, the particular mockery that Peter pulls out is they're going to say, where is that promise of his return? Because that's the essence of the Christian hope. We're all looking forward to the return of Christ. I'm really looking forward to the return of Christ. I'm really looking forward to the eschatological end of days, the kingdom to come, Christ being lifted up, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. I'm looking forward to all that. So they say, okay, where's that? When's that going to happen? And it's made even worse by the, pardon my language, by the really foolish Christians who set dates. Jesus makes it clear that no man knows, but he is coming back. He said so. 
So they're going to mock us, and the way they're going to mock us for that belief is they're going to say, but everything continues exactly as it ever was, and to this day, if you look around, whatever you see today is how it's always been. Now, that is the basic essence of the entire Darwinistic theory of evolution, is that everything has always been the way it is now. Well, Peter's going to blow up that theory. Peter's going to say, well, when they say that it's just always been this way, they forget what the Bible says, and the Bible proves that everything has not always been the way it is now. Here's Peter's argument. Follow this. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Don't miss the brilliance of this argument. Peter just said, first off, there wasn't always an earth. The earth was formed by the word of God. And the heavens existed. Don't think the heaven where God is. In Jewish reckoning, there are three heavens. There's the heaven where the birds fly. We would call that the atmosphere. There's the heaven where the stars are. We would call that the universe. And there's the heaven where God sits. That's called the third heaven. Paul even talks about meeting a man who had been to the third heaven. And so God created heaven and earth this atmosphere, this planet, and so he can destroy this heaven and earth if he wants to, which is why the Bible promises a new heavens and a new earth. God doesn't have to recreate the heaven he's in. It's fine. It's perfect. But he's going to recreate the atmosphere. He's going to recreate the planet. So Peter's argument is, the earth didn't always exist, and even when you think about the history of the earth, you have to take into account the flood. And the flood changed things. If you go back and you read the Genesis account, I'll give you a quick example of how things were changed. Before the flood, human beings lived hundreds and hundreds of years, all the way up to Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived. People were living six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. Flood. Lifespan drops dramatically till we're down to three score and ten now. Okay, that's a difference. Things changed. What changed? Well, everything about the planet was changed by the flood. That's Peter's argument. So when you start with the assumption that the world has always worked the way the world is working now, you have to take into account that there were times of cataclysmic change in the planet, and then Peter is going to use that historic reality in order to say, and the future's not always going to be the same. Because 
while God did make a promise to Noah that he would never again flood the earth, he also points out, next time, fire. God's not going to flood the earth. He's going to burn it. Here's Peter's argument. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water. If you go back and read the Genesis account, the planet was covered in water, and then God brought land up out of the water. So it was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, the one right now, the one that exists right now, if you go out and look around, the present heavens and earth, by that same word, by the word of God, are being preserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Where did he start? There's going to be mockers who mock after their own lusts. Those are ungodly people. And so Peter says, God is preserving the planet until the time of judgment. That judgment is going to be fire and destruction, and he's keeping them for that judgment. Okay, so Peter just differentiated between those that believe in the prophets, in the apostles, in the things of Christ, and those who mock the things of Christ. And notice that in both cases, whether it's the creation of the world and the salvation of people through the prophets and apostles, or whether it's the judgment at the end, all of it is done by God. It's always God. It's God that did the creating. It's God that did the choosing. It's God that's doing the judgment. It's God that did the flooding. It's God that brings the fire. It's all sovereign God working out his plan. So really, do the mockers have anything to stand on in Peter's economy? Nothing. They got nothing because their assumptions are wrong. Their assumption is the world has always been like this. No, it hasn't. Once upon a time, the Lord of glory walked on the planet. That's different. When the Lord of glory comes back, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, and that mountain is going to cleave in half. Okay, that's different. That's different than what's happening right now. Once upon a time, there was a man, the Lord of glory, walking on the planet who healed the sick and raised the dead and gave the blind back their eyes, and the lame leaped for joy around him. Okay, that's different. That's not happening right now. Things are different over the course of time. That's Peter's argument. And because they have failed to understand what God has done in the past, they fail to understand what God is going to do in the future, which is why they mock. You get the argument? But the present heavens and the present earth are by his word preserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years, one day. In other words, he's saying, the mockers say, everything has remained the same ever since the forefathers fell asleep. 
So they're claiming that God is just not doing what he said he's going to do. Where's the promise of his coming? That's what he said he was going to do, and he's not doing it. So Peter's argument is, what's it been, a couple thousand years? That's like Tuesday to God. God is not like us. We track time by calendars in 24-hour increments. We're paying attention to time constantly. We're aging. He's not aging. He's the ageless one. He's the eternal one. And he's not following the same set of time-based criteria that we are. He created time. I heard a theologian many years ago say, and I've just always liked the phrase, and I've repeated it a few times, the reason that God created time was so that everything wouldn't happen all at once. He stretched it out over time. But he controls time. He's going to wrap up time, and we're going to launch out into eternity, where suddenly there is no time. There are going to be no watches in heaven, no calendars, nobody marking time. And so the failure to understand the eternality of God is why the mockers mock. They say it's been so long. Peter says, no, 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 no. A thousand years is a day to God. And a day is a thousand years to God. In other words, God's not slack concerning his promise. That's the rest of the argument. Look at verse 9. And the Lord is not slow about keeping his promises, as some would count slowness. Some people are going to charge him with slowness. Some people are going to say, well, he made promises, but he hasn't kept them. To any thoroughgoing Jew, they know that God has promised the kingdom ever since the time of David. They would reach back to the Abrahamic covenant and they would say, we've been promised this giant landmass that we still haven't inhabited. So where's the promise? Where's the promise of the day of the Lord? Where's the promise of the kingdom? Where's all that? Well, here's his answer. The Lord is not slack about his promises, as some would count slowness, but he is patient toward you. The King James says, but he is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Okay, now you know that that verse is one of the big three that Arminians love to utilize. They love to ignore the rest of the argument and just take that phrase that God's not willing that any should perish. And then they stick it together with John 3.16 and 1 Timothy 2.4. And there you go. You got your basic Arminian argument. In context, it's very, very obvious what Peter is saying. And notice that he even said who the promise is to. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, but is patient toward you. The King James says he's patient toward us. And in the continuation of the same sentence says that God is not willing or wishing that any would perish. Any of who? Given the context. Any of who? Any of us. 
God is not willing that any of us would perish. Is that true? Absolutely. And if God's not willing that any of us perish, are any of us going to perish? No, absolutely not, because God's not willing for that to happen. But the Arminian contingent would have us believe that God is not willing that anybody perish. But poor God, though he's not willing, it's going to happen anyway. Because human beings, by their own free will, are just going to refuse to get saved. And they're just going to stamp their little feet and say, no, God, I won't let you be sovereign. And I won't let you accomplish your will If God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely not willing that anybody perishes, then nobody's going to perish. So you've got to either give up on the sovereignty of God or you've got to understand the sentence in its context. And the sentence in its context is God is not willing that any of you perish. That's why he's long-suffering. In that same chapter, look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, we'll talk about which things those are in a moment, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, to be salvation. Okay, so what's Peter saying? He's restating the same thing. It is the patience, it is the long-suffering of God that leads to your salvation. So don't Say, well, where is the promise of his coming? Don't say it's all taking too long. Recognize that the length of time it's taking is because God is not willing to let you perish. Therefore, he is taking the time necessary to make sure you don't. So reckon the patience of God as your salvation. Not the patience of God shows God's slackness concerning his purposes or concerning his promises. Instead, see the long-suffering of God as leading to salvation. So not only is 2 Peter 3.9 to be understood in its immediate context, the promises are to us, so he's not willing that any of us should perish, but it's also in the larger context part of Peter's argument about the slowness or the slackness of God and that the mockers should not mock because God is being purposefully slow to guarantee that none of his people are lost. Do you get the argument? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. Then he continues. And now he's going to say things that are just right out of the Old Testament. Now he's going to say some things that are very, very Jewish in their history. But the day of the Lord, okay, now why does he introduce the day of the Lord right there? Because to the Jewish mind, they're not looking for the return of Christ to catch away the church. The promise to the Jews is the return of Christ to set up a kingdom. And the day of the Lord, when God is going to punish the nations that have punished Israel. When God sets everything right and judges the nations, that's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is repeated several, several times in the Old Testament. I'm not going to pull out my iPad and go through all the notes, but I've got some notes on how often the day of the Lord comes up. But the day of the Lord always has to do, wherever you find it, 
whether you find fulfillment of it or whether you see it eschatologically, the day of the Lord always has to do with God intervening in human history in order to punish or judge Gentile nations and to defend Israel. And so there is a desire to see the day of the Lord come. There's a genuine desire for the establishment of the kingdom and the punishment of their enemies. So knowing that, that's why Peter would refer to God not being slack and that his promises aren't taking a long time. And then he goes right to the very thing they're expecting. Where's his return? They're not thinking about the return of Christ to catch away the church. Where's the return of God to establish Israel? But the day of the Lord, that whole thing will come like a thief. Okay, now we have to talk about that. In the Old Testament, when God judged Babylon, it was referred to as the day of the Lord. Isaiah refers to it as the day of the Lord. And so it always has to do, as I said, with God judging nations and defending Israel. They're anticipating, they're looking forward to the day of the Lord, the return of the Lord. But then Peter says, it's not that God is slack. He's being patient for your salvation, but that day is going to come, and it's going to come suddenly. It's going to come as a sudden destruction on the Gentile nations. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens, not the heaven where God is, but the heavens, the atmosphere, will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. There's that destruction by fire thing. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Okay, so now let's talk about the contrast between what Peter has said and what Paul has said. Because I keep trying to stress that Peter is writing to the diaspora. He's writing to believing Jews who have all that history in the Old Testament, have all that stuff that the prophets have said, who are looking forward to the kingdom of God that is promised to Israel. But when it comes to Paul writing to the Gentile church, Paul also talks about the day of the Lord and that it's going to come like a thief in the night. But Paul throws out one caveat that Peter doesn't. So let's see what Paul has to say. Turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5. I know there's food in the back, and I know you're all getting hungry. But like I said earlier, I like the competition. (laughs) Now as to the times and the epochs, the chronos, the word from which we get chronograph. Now as to the times or the succession of seasons and times, the kairos. Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why wouldn't they have any need for Paul to write anything to them about the eschatology, about what's coming, about the times and the seasons and what's coming future? Why why would he say, you don't really need me to write this? Well, it would be because he taught them this. Paul taught eschatology all the time. The Thessalonians were steeped in eschatology. So he says, as to the times and the epochs or the seasons, brethren, 
You have no need of anything to be written to you. Then why is he writing it? Because they need to be reminded. Because we need to be reminded over and over again because we forget stuff. So Paul, just like Peter, reminds them. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. There it is again. Now there is a book out about the rapture called A Thief in the Night. And the idea of the book is that the rapture of the church is going to come about suddenly like a thief in the night. But you're going to see here that Paul is going to differentiate a thief in the night from what's going to happen to the church. Because the day of the Lord, the eschatological day of the Lord, is referred to as a thief in the night. But the rapture of the church is never referred to that way. Listen to what Paul says. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, notice while they, while they are saying, in a moment he's going to say, but you. But talking about they that are going to be punished while they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child. They will not escape. They, they will not escape. But you, brethren, you are not in darkness so that that day would overtake you like a thief. Interesting. Peter just differentiated the church from the thief in the night. Okay, so why won't the day of the Lord, thief of the night, overtake us suddenly? Because we'll be gone by then. Not only is this the judgment of God and the wrath of God being poured out, but Paul writes, we're not appointed to wrath. It's yet another evidence that we have to be gone before this happens. But they, they're going to be saying, everything's peaceful, everything's safe, everything's good. I think part of the reason they're going to say that is because the church is gone. They're not going to have us nagging them anymore. They're not going to have us like a big red beacon that God exists and the Bible's true. We're going to be gone, and they're going to make all their reasons and rationales and excuses for why we're gone, and they're going to be saying it's all peaceful now. We all, it's all safety now. It's all good now. But while they're saying that, sudden destruction comes upon them suddenly. But you, brethren, you are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief because you are the sons of light. And sons of day, we're not of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and let us be sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. 
Okay, so Paul took the eschatological gathering of the church to Christ as a jumping off point to say, now what kind of people should you be? If you know this is true of you, how should you be? Peter's about to do the same thing. Except in talking to the Jews, he can't say, that day is not going to overtake you like a thief. He says the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night because the purpose of the day of the Lord is the establishment of the kingdom of Israel and the punishment of the Gentile nations. That's different than what Paul was writing about when he wrote to the church and to Gentiles. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Okay, I just want you to keep seeing the distinctions because the distinctions still exist in the New Testament. All right, let's get down here. We're back in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking forward to, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. On account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with fervent heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, that's exactly what's promised all the way through the Old Testament. And John, who is also an apostle to the circumcision, when he writes the Revelation at Revelation 21, he describes the new age to come, the new heavens, and the new earth. And then the descending of New Jerusalem. So again, it all has that Israelite foundation and basis to it. And notice that Peter said, knowing that everything here is going to burn, knowing that everything here is going to be destroyed by God, if you know that, what kind of people should you be? I would start with, uh, you should be generous, because everything you hoard up to yourself, it's going to burn. It means nothing. What kind of people should you be? He says here, you should be caught up in holy conduct, separate conduct, separate from the world, not the way that the world thinks and the world acts, and godliness, because you're looking for and you're hastening the coming of the day of God. So what kind of people should you be? Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. Now, when did Paul write to this particular audience? When did he write to the diaspora? We know that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. Peter says here, Paul wrote to you, and he said these same things. When did that happen? Where in the Bible do we find it? When did he write to Jewish believers? Jeff's grinning because he knows what I'm getting at. (laughs) 
He may be the author of Hebrews. The earliest collections of books used to put Hebrews in with the Pauline writing. They believe that Paul was, if not the direct author, that the theology is very, very Pauline. And so since there's no author of Hebrews actually named, the early church believed it was written by Paul. Through an amanuensis, and so the language is a little different than Pauline language, but the theology is firmly Pauline. If that's the case, then that was a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, and Peter can refer to that by saying, our brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom that was given to him. He wrote to you, as also in all his letters, he's speaking in them of these things, in which are some things Hard to understand. I like that Peter admits that some of it's just hard to understand. Some of it's just tough. Some of Paul is very, very complex. But then what do people do with that complexity? What do people do with that difficulty? How do they handle the letters from Paul? Do they read them for what they actually say, or do they twist them and contort them according to their own traditions and their own theology and their own preferred outcome? Well, Peter addresses that. There are things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the whole rest of the scripture to their destruction. Okay, what did he say again? He said that when people distort the scripture, when people twist the scripture to make it fit themselves, all they're really doing is confirming the truth of the scripture that said they would be like that. All they're doing, again, is fulfilling the truth of the scripture that says that there are going to be people who will mock. There are people who are going to hate godliness. There are people who are going to reject the promises of Christ and the promises of the Old Testament, including the promise of a kingdom future for Israel. They're going to mock all that, and they're going to twist and distort the scripture to bring it into their own understanding because the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand. And Peter says that when they do that, they do that to their own destruction. And by the way, one more thing. I'm convinced that if someone is willing to twist a part of Scripture, they're willing to twist all of Scripture. If they're willing to twist something, if you're listening to somebody and you you think, man, that, that can't be right. That's not what the text says. You're making stuff up for whatever reason so that it can reach the conclusion that you want. If they're willing to twist any part of Scripture... They're willing to twist all of scripture. And that's what Peter says. There are things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Because once you go down that road of saying the Bible can't mean that. So I'm going to decide for myself what the Bible must mean. Once you go down that road, Katie barred the door. Because you don't know what they're going to come up with next. So Peter says that as well. You therefore, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that people are going to twist the scripture, well then be on your guard. 
I don't want to rave. I don't want to start ranting. But for how many years have I been saying to you, hold your preachers accountable? Whenever anybody stands up and opens the word of God, hold them accountable to what the word of God says. And don't just take a man's word just because he's standing behind a pulpit and has a Bible open. He's still going to say stuff, and it has to comport with the scripture. And if it doesn't, says Peter, be on your guard, because here's what will happen. Be on guard lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. So you know the truth. You're committed to the word. You're following along with what God has said. And then you start listening to somebody, somebody on the internet, somebody on TV or some church that you're visiting. You, you start listening to somebody and next thing you know, you start thinking, well, that that sounded pretty convincing, and he's a good speaker, and maybe he actually knows what he's talking about, and maybe my understanding of what the word says has always been wrong, and next thing you know, you start falling away from your own steadfast commitment to the Bible, and you start absorbing the traditions of men. Mm -hmm. Peter says, don't do that. Don't let that happen. Sandy, you had your hand up. Yeah. I just want to say that Peter was given validity to, to, to Paulus being inspired scriptures. So he's also confirming that he was a man of God as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll notice that he didn't just confirm Paul, the most recent of the apostles he said to listen to, but he also confirmed what the prophet said. He's saying the whole of scripture, pay attention to it, and don't twist it. Don't contort it. Don't make it say something it doesn't say. And don't listen to men who do that. Peter couldn't be more adamant. Don't listen to that. Know beforehand that people will twist scripture and be on your guard. Lest being carried away by the error of those unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. So what should you do? This is my hope for all of you. This is obviously Peter's hope. This is how Peter closes the letter, but do this. But grow in grace. And the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. That's the end of 2 Peter. So, God is not slack concerning his promises. He's being patient because he's got a number that he is fulfilling, that he is satisfying. He is still drawing people to himself. And what a scary day that's going to be when God says, that's it. I've made up the number. Paul talks about it. After the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. So God's making up a number, and if you're in that number, thank God. Because that's a frightening time when God says, and that's it. Because then the time of tribulation starts. And then the day of the Lord. And then finally the establishment 
of the kingdom and the fulfillment of all the promises that were ever made in the Old Testament to Israel in particular because God is not slow about his promises. He's taking his time on purpose because he is doing exactly what he determined to do before the foundation of the world. So don't judge God. You're not his judge. There's no God in the dock. You're not bringing witnesses to try to judge God for something he's done wrong. If there is any difference between you and God, the difference is you, not God. You're the problem. You're not patient. You're not on God's side where God is doing what God is determined to do. So instead of mocking, instead of making fun, just recognize that things have not always been the way they are now. And they're not always going to be the way they are now. And that God is going to bring about every promise that he's ever made. And that Peter says it and Paul says it. And it's only men who object to it and try to twist it and try to distort it and try to make it say something else. Don't listen to them because then you'll be carried away by their deception. Those unprincipled men. Instead, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that you can do that is to stick to the word, stick to the word, stick to the word. Got it? Got it. Good. I'm happy to hear that. Questions? Okay, well, I'm surprised no one has asked, well, then what are we doing next week? Might be Romans, maybe. I told Janine last night, I have now officially taught through the entire New Testament, verse by verse, with the exception of the Gospel of Mark. Because the Gospel of Mark is actually all kind of covered in the other three, but I may, just because I'm a completionist, (laughs) may decide to do the Gospel of Mark. Or I might decide the book of Romans, who knows? So if you have an opinion on that, drop me a note. Let me know what you think. But show up next week, and you'll find out where we're starting again. You had your hand up, Sandy. Yeah. Does that mean that Peter was wrong? Was he, is he saying that he knew that Paul's letters would be what we are using today as scriptures? Was he saying that? Yeah, that is an interesting point that you bring out that Peter does refer to the Pauline letters as scripture because he says they twist those letters as they do all scripture. But notice that he did say the Old Testament and what came to you from the prophets and through the Lord Jesus Christ and your apostles. And Paul being an apostle would have that word directly from Jesus. So as Peter equated the Old Testament with the uh, apostolic writing that would make the letters of Paul scripture. Good catch, though. Good observation. Anything else? Stick around and eat with us. I saw Bertrill sneaking through the door back there with food, and so there's plenty of food in the back, as there always is when we have potluck. I don't believe in luck, so I call it pot providence. Meanwhile, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. 
and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.